Hi, and welcome to a new episode of Pasha. My name is Nundobe Gomjali. Thank you for joining us. In today's episode, we bring you a podcast that comes from The Conversation Weekly. Jema Wei discusses how Nairobi's informal settlements got their names with Melissa Wanjiru Muita, a lecturer at the Technical University of Kenya. First of all, can I ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Who are you and, and what do you do? What's your research on? Okay, so my name is Melissa Wanjiru Muita. Um, I'm a Kenyan by nationality, and I currently reside in Nairobi, Kenya. I am a lecturer at Technical University of Kenya, where I teach a course on partial planning and design. I'm also a researcher, and my main interest is on toponymy, otherwise known as place naming. And I look at the relationship between the names of places and the politics and the culture of those places. So basically, how do the names uh, reflect the politics and the culture of a place and how they can be used to interpret or even reflect the image of a place, a city, a town, even a village. And you've just published some recent research about this in the city of Nairobi. So can you tell us what was it about? What What were you researching? I've done quite a bit of research on place naming, on different aspects of place naming. And this is what I did for my PhD thesis. So I looked at um, uh, how names have evolved from when Nairobi was uh, a colonial city to a post-colonial city or post-independent city, and now the contemporary challenges that we are facing. So I looked at street naming in Nairobi and how it has changed over time and how that really talks about the history of the city. I also looked at uh, names in informal settlements uh, and how these names reflect the challenges and struggles that the people there um, have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. And I've also looked at a current trend of um, um, privatization of names, whereby uh, we have large international corporations buying the naming rights of public spaces and using that as an advertising space. Let's go back a bit and understand the history of this. So can you just give us an an outline of how, what's the history of of these informal settlements around around the edge of Nairobi? Tell us. Tell us how they grew and, and one of the what's happened to them over time. Okay, so when we look at informal settlements, they are really as old as the city is. And this is uh, as a result of a shortage of housing. So when the city began, it started as a railway city, whereby we had the Kenya-Uganda Railway, uh, which was meant as a tr- transportation route. Uh, to get raw materials from the inland all to all the way to the coast. And so when they reached Nairobi, it seemed as a good place to come up with a depot or a storage area. And that's how Nairobi developed as a small town. Actually, it started as a camping site and then developed into a town and then into a city. And so when the railway reached Nairobi, the site called Nairobi in 1899, And so for the next 20 years or so, it was a railway town until it became uh, a colonial city whereby the British who were at the time colonizing Nairobi 
uh, found it to be a good base to come up with a provincial headquarters. So that's how Nairobi grew from a railway town into an administrative center, into a commercial hub until what it is now as a regional hub. How the informal settlements developed was that there were different groups, different communities. So we had the, the British colonial government and their officials who came in, especially to build the railway and to administer the center. And then we had Indian workers who were also working uh, for the railway. And then we had the African natives who were doing uh, cattle grazing and some farming activities even before the center became a railway center or a town. And so we had three, these three communities. And so for such a small city to accommodate these different groups, there were some challenges. And um, so there was a sense of segregation based on communities. And the idea was to not have the African native as a permanent resident of the city. But what happened is that because of uh, the attraction of how the city was developing quickly and just the commercial activities happening around there, then we had more of them coming in. And so they could not be accommodated. And that's how some of the shanties or some of the temporary housing started to develop on the edges of the city, the places that were not planned. So basically we can say that the informal settlements are, are as old as the city. And, and something happened in, in the 1920s, didn't it? How did, it, how did this, as the city grew, what happened? How did the colonial administrators try and deal with the, the growing kind of informal settlements? So in 1922, there was a Vagrancy Act, which was put up. And really, it was to try and uh, curb the influx of especially the native African into the city. And so everyone was, every African native coming into the city was expected to carry an identification, which was hanging a bottle on their neck. And this was uh, called a kipande. It's, it was called the kipande system. Actually, up to now, we still have our IDs are referred to as kipandes, although now they have evolved into small cards. Yeah, so that was a way in which the colonial government was trying to curb the influx of the African native. But this still uh, did not uh, completely work as they expected. And so that is when some of these uh, dormitory residents started to be built so that at least they could be accommodated into these places. So it was a mixture of kind of informal settlements and then a bit later it became a bit more organised, I guess. So um, I would say that they did not completely, the informal settlements did not completely disappear. Okay, there were efforts to come and remove them. And I would say they developed parallel. Like uh, we have the dormitories or the official working um, residences being built, but this did not stop the development of the informal settlements. Yeah, so they all grew at the same time. Yeah, even though the idea was actually to get rid of the informal settlements. Okay. 
And, and your recent paper that you, you've written has, has focused on the history of three of these settlements, hasn't it? My recent research was looking at three main informal settlements in Nairobi, and Kibera uh, happens to be the largest. Then we have another one called Madare uh, and Mokuru. So the largest of this is Kibera, and it's considered to be the largest in Africa. Yeah, so all these three uh, settlements have a very unique histories, uh, but what is common to all of them is that uh, they, the names reflect the challenges or the, the challenges and the struggles that the residents face on a day-to-day basis. And, and tell us, how did you go about doing the research to find out the history of these three settlements? What, what did you actually do? To understand the history, I had to do a lot of archival research. So in Kenya, we have the Kenya National Archives, where you can find um, old newspaper records. You can find some books written um, even from when the city began. And then we also have a library called the Macmillan Library, where I found some archival materials. And I also visited the National Archives in the UK, where um, there are a lot of materials on colonial Kenya, uh, and I used those to get the history of how the settlements developed. I also did some fieldwork where I talked to the residents themselves to understand uh, where do these names come from, do they know how the names came about, and I will, I I happened to talk to some elderly people who had who have lived in the settlements for quite a bit and just have they have an understanding about the history of the settlements yeah some of the names have got political connotations have they as well yeah so uh, one thing you will notice in the informal settlements is that they, they are very cons- cosmopolitan uh, we have different ethnicities in Kenya and all these people come and live together within a small space like Kibera and so some of the divisions or um, the, bound, the, the delineations are based on ethnic communities. Uh, you'll find a small village refers to, referred to as Kisumundogo, which means a small Kisumu. And so that uh, implies that the people living there came from Kisumu, which is another city in Kenya, and made a small Kisumu there. So that is where the political aspect comes in. And uh, also the ethnic uh, communities, uh, they tend to vote along ethnic lines. So that also brings in a political aspect to the names, yeah. What do you think your research is, is revealing about the way that the inhabitants of these places, how does it show their relationship to the city and to the places that they live in in the way that they name them? Okay, I think first of all it shows a history of injustice uh, against a certain group of people. So the city tends to be divided between the haves and the have-nots and there's such a large disparity or a big disparity between the middle class and the high income groups and the urban poor living in Nairobi. Also, it reflects a history of injustice in terms of these people have been evicted from these areas since the city came up. And this is still ongoing. 
almost a hundred years later. Also, it shows that the people know what's going on, not just within their small area, but they can identify with larger struggles and just a reflection of the effect of globalization and how the urban poor can pick up on that and use it as a voice to tell the authorities, look, why are you treating us as if we don't belong to this uh, in this area yet? This is our country. This Why can't we have a part of the city where we belong, even though we are the urban poor? The names are really a voice for the people trying to communicate the struggles that they are facing. And how are the, the names um, demonstrated? So if you go, th- if you go to... Kosovo, if you go to Soweto in, in these in these areas, you know, do you see signs or, you know, is it that people refer to them? Are they on the on the um, on the transport? You know, tell us how, how it manifests itself. Okay, so in some cases like Kibera, um, over time the government uh, came to accept the the role of the Nubian community in the development of the settlements. And so you'll find a few streets with formal signages or street names uh, with uh, Nubian names. But for most of these other names, you won't find uh, a signage showing that you're now entering uh, this and this village. There is no such. So it's the people themselves who actually have these boundaries in their minds. And they know that, okay, beyond this, we are now in another village. And so until you speak to the people, you would not really understand how the boundaries are put. So another way you will know where you are is the names of the shops, the names of the small restaurants or kiosks. Um, That's how you you will find something like Kosovo bar or a Nubian restaurant, Nubian cuisine. And what about today? Are our names still emerging? Is it still evolving now? How does it change? There are some names which are still emerging. And um, I think I just mentioned uh, the name Kampala. So this is a tiny area within Madare settlement. And the the story is that there are many immigrants coming from um, Uganda. So Kampala is the capital city of Uganda. And these people come in, they are not registered, they are working uh, illegally, so to speak. They don't have the right documents. And you find many of them coming to live there and look for work. So because of where they come from, then the locals uh, named that area Kampala. Yeah, so this is quite recent. We are talking about the 2000s, 2010s, where these other small villages have emerged. Thanks for listening to this episode produced by Ozeat Patel. Thanks to Jema Wei and The Conversation Weekly for the recording as well. From me, Nendobe Gomjali, bye for now.